Welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Samoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji. Welcome to my favorite coffee story. We have such a fun show today. We're talking about friends and coffee. And before I introduce our wonderful guest, Louise, we're going to have our Anikona Farm moment. I am so delighted you've joined us, listeners all around the world. And we're so glad you're with us from Ireland and Kansas City and Seattle and Texas and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Japan and Korea and Canada. Thank you so much for being with us. So about what's going on at Anikona Farm on the big island of Hawaii. We've had a lot of volcanic activity, as you've probably been noticing in the news. Um, But on a positive note, our coffee trees have loved this activity. We've had a lot of cloud cover here in beautiful Halualoa, Hawaii, above Kona, 2,000 feet or 600 meters above Kona Town. And our coffee trees love when we have that cloud cover. And that's coming from mainly from that volcanic activity. We have a lot of volcanic ash in the air, but I think we're going to have a great harvest this year, which is really exciting. We've also had our wonderful friends on the farm from San Francisco area, Silicon Valley, Jules and Luis here with us, and these are our favorite times at Anikona Farm when we can share good moments here together, and we thought, oh, I was so inspired to share about friendship and actually share some fun coffee stories. Luis was nice to join us, so let me please introduce Luis Mejia. He's the CEO of VoterCapital.org, and most recently he was Associate Director at Stanford University's Office of Technology Licensing from 1988 to 2017, and we're going to have some fascinating and interesting, inspiring stories during those days. So we just would like to welcome Luis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Aniko. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you this morning. Thank you. Oh, we are so delighted. And we are so excited about sharing about friends and coffee. And thank you so much for being always such a wonderful friend. And I was just noting how we've had our friendship for close to 30 years with you and Jules. And that has been such a blessing for us. So thank you so much for all your friendship. And, Luis, we were thinking it'd be so fun to share with our listeners about your early days in your career and growing up days, family times. Please share with us, Luis, about those early days. Well, um, I grew up in Southern California, and um, I was very fortunate that I uh, lived near the beach, and um, I became... Um, the, the beach became a big part of my life, and so um, I. Ever since uh, then, I've, um, you know, whenever whenever I'm near the ocean, it's, it it really means a lot to me. And um, actually, being here on, on the Big Island is um, really a terrific treat. Being surrounded by water and all the beauty, and 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 certainly a, a place like like the Big Island where you have, you know, the the, the benefit of of 
um, the beautiful, um, you know, volcanic areas with the with the lush forests and the beautiful coffee trees, all of that with an ocean view. So, um, you know, the ocean has really been a, a big part of my life. And um, I was uh, away from the ocean uh, when I was off to college. Um, but other than that, I've, I've always been um, uh, living somewhere near the ocean in California and um, now uh, residing part-time in, in Hawaii. But, um, you know, my early days um, really were uh, a, a, a great pleasure to, to grow, in Southern, grow up in Southern California and, and, and have kind of an outdoor lifestyle and um, around terrific people. Um, I was uh, uh, involved in athletics, uh, played football in, in high school and in college. And um, got thankful for um, having played football because it helped me um, focus on, on school and uh, uh, finish up my, my, my engineering degree, which um, uh, was focused on, on energy systems um, because I had a, 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 a proclivity and, and love of, of the environment. And so I was really concerned about um, uh, energy-related issues, so I, so I started uh, my career um, based on uh, my engineering degree in energy systems engineering. And Luis, you attended Arizona State University. Please share with us some of your those university times and maybe some fun favorite coffee stories during those university days, please. Sure. Um, well, I mean, actually, kind of going back a little bit before um, um, high school, uh, college a little bit it was really when I started, uh, well, actually in the early days of my, my college, I suppose, before I went to Arizona. Um, uh, I, um, I needed to study a lot, let's just say. I um, probably um, had to do a lot more uh, work than maybe most people to, um, to do well in school. So um, as a result, I ended up having to stay up late at night and uh, a good friend of mine and I, um, we uh, studied um, together to help help us get through some long study sessions and and um, into late in the evening. And we would drive to um, uh, a library that was open open past midnight uh, to to get some extra studying hours. And in in order to get through those long study sessions, we we had to load up on <laughs> coffee to uh, uh, to to. To you know, keep keep alert and and um, you know be able to put in, put a lot of hours in it, and, and so um, that was really uh, how I got into drinking coffee was just as a result of um, needing to um, uh, stay focused and alert and uh, spending a lot of time studying, and you know that carried on throughout my 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 college career, and um, you know we uh, when I was at Arizona State um, would also study together with with friends, and we would head over to um, Murray Calendar's. Uh, local Murray calendars in, in, in Tempe and um, and load up with 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 coffee and um, their their berry pie, which provided the sugar that extra amount of energy to kind of help us keep <laughs> going at night. So um, yeah, those are, those were my early days of, of coffee, and again, it was mostly um, there for a, a stimulant and not so much for the the love of coffee. But um, but I have been a, a uh, a lover of coffee, really, um, and gotten more of, to be a lover of coffee um, over the years as I've gotten older and had exposure to, to different types of uh, cultures and, and coffees from around the world. Well, exactly. And I know that you have family in Italy and that coffee there is so wonderful. Have you had some favorite family coffee moments there in Italy by chance? 
Uh, I, I can't tell you how um, the memories that I have uh, of, of having coffee in Italy, how great they were. Um, they, my my aunt who, who lives in Naples, uh, they used um, a little. Uh, I forget what they're called. It's a little silver, uh, like aluminum stove top pot where you would put the water in the bottom and and then it would uh, percolate up through a kind of a top um, area where where the coffee grounds were. Um, actually, there was I guess there was a filter kind of in between with that um, the um, the water was forced up through and into a top yeah. uh, chamber where you would pour the coffee out of. But that's a fair you know that's a fairly common uh, uh, coffee maker in in Italy, and that was the first time I'd ever used one of those. Uh, and that's probably over over twenty some years ago for sure um, that uh, I was first exposed to that. But my my uh, my aunt made a great cup of coffee. Um, using uh, that device, and um, in Italy they they use a lot of sugar. At least my aunt uses a lot of sugar and um, uh, and 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 milk, uh, and it it made for a really rich, um, uh, powerful uh, cup of coffee. But it was my first exposure to really something different, other than your normal like restaurant um, uh, uh, brewed coffee. And so it was, uh, you know, a, a nice treat to do to do something different and and uh, experience a different type of type of coffee then um beyond that in italy um, my aunt and um my wife jules we when we used to go um shopping because you know they like people like to shop there in italy and there's beautiful shopping streets (laughs) and um uh you know surrounded by you know old buildings and and you're in rome and everything is just just beautiful um this place a good great place to walk around and and as you can imagine in every corner practically there's an espresso shop and so uh, my aunt and my wife would uh jules would would um practically on every block stop at the uh at the espresso bar and 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 have a have a little cup of espresso and then continue shopping and um and that's it's such a big part of the culture there and, and europe in general um, you know, the coffee, and um, that was that was really a lot of fun. Um, and again, it got me exposed to different types of and styles of coffee um, that you know we're typically were exposed to in California. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Louise. And when you were at Arizona State and you were pursuing your degree in energy systems engineering, uh, that sounds like such an interesting area and field. Did you by chance have some favorite classes or? Favorite mentors during those days? Uh, yeah, um, I would say that uh, my favorite classes were um, thermodynamics and um, uh, and, and chemistry. And um, I had some pretty tough math classes. Those were fun because they were challenging. Um, I would say I loved the you know really <laughs> difficult math classes, but I loved the challenge uh, of the, you know. The problems that that they that they pose, but um, I had a really um, really good teacher in my um, thermodynamics and, and my fluid dynamics classes that um, helped me do well in those classes. I, I I mean they were really really tough classes and I did particularly well in it. Uh, for some reason, you know, it was it was, it was something that came to me kind of naturally and. Uh, so yeah, those are, those are some, some of my favorite times in, uh, uh, at Arizona State and some of my favorite classes. And I'm so curious for our listeners, Louise, how from 
the Arizona State University Times, how you then started at Stanford University's Office of Technology License in July of 1988. Please share with us about that. Sure. So uh, I, um, I, I got into energy systems engineering uh, really as a result of the, um, the Arab oil embargo. Um, that was going on uh, during my high school years in, in, in Southern California. And, you know, at that time, um, there was a shortage of oil, and um, we had to, to wait in line at the gas station to get gasoline. Uh, and we were told that, you know, they were, were, were running out of oil. And so, um, you know, at that point, I decided, well, I guess maybe – that would be a great thing to, to get into is to try to figure out what alternatives to oil we might have as, as a nation to try to help us um, protect us from these, these oil shocks that um, you know, cause great disruption in, um, in people's lives and, and you know, provided uh, insecure times for, for our country. So um, that's why I got into energy systems uh, engineering you know, in the first place. And by the time I graduated from college, the Arab oil embargo was long over, and uh, the world was uh, flush in oil all of, again. And um, uh, so, at, the, at that point, though, there were still some uh, programs that had been um, started uh, during the um, Carter administration to try to help uh, save energy, and primarily around the area of. Uh, energy conservation and energy systems engineering, and um, the uh, utility company in uh, San Francisco, Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, had a very big program in energy conservation and, and energy management. So um, I was lucky to um, get uh, get hired by Pacific Gas and Electric out of college, and I worked there for five years. Um, after about that five years that I was there, uh, there was a, the interest in energy conservation, energy management um, started to wane, and the, the emphasis at the utility became more about um, selling more energy, and um, so they wanted to, to focus more on selling energy rather than conserving energy. So that was something that was not of interest to me, and so I just started looking for a new job. And I was very lucky to to uh, learn about a job at Stanford University and um, in the Office of Technology Licensing, which in 19, 1988 was still a very fledgling, fledgling um, profession. Uh, the very few universities had licensing offices. Stanford had had one since um, since 1970, and uh, had a fairly small office, but it was in the uh, uh, in the process of, of enlarging its office to to deal with um, uh, increase, increasing numbers of invention disclosures coming from the university's researchers. And so the director at that time, uh, Niels Reimers, uh, was looking for a mechanical engineer, which, which is the degree under which my energy systems engineering um, fell into. And so I, my background fit real well, very well within um, what their um, interest was in terms of a person who had a technical background uh, in the engineering sciences. Um, I had no experience really to speak of in, in intellectual property uh, and or licensing, and so that was something that um, I had to learn um, learn on the fly as as, uh, as I went. Well, and, and 
your time at the Office of Technology Licensing at Stanford University, there were so many interesting inventions that happened. And as you were working with the professors, and we're about to go to break, uh, listeners, but we thought we would um, ask Luis one question before we go to the break about what were your favorite parts working at the Office of Technology at that time in the 19, late 1980s? Well, it, I mean, Stanford is a really amazing place. I was, just, again, fortunate to, to, to be there, uh, being around so many smart people and so many nice um, people in my office and the university faculty and students were all really terrific people. And I think that, would, to me, um, you know, aside um, from the fact that, that you know, in, in, incredible in, uh, inventions were being created and uh, incredible, incredibly important new knowledge was being developed every day. Aside from all of those, that wonderful part of the job, just being around, you know, terrific people, I think, was something that made that experience uh, ex- uh, especially uh, in- enjoyable and um, and fulfilling. Yes, of course, absolutely, and. We're going to take a quick break, and listeners, please join us because we're going to ask Louise about the Google moment. So please join us right after the break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. 
Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're having such a wonderful chat with our guest, Luis Mejia. We're talking about friends and coffee. And Luis and Jules, his wife, are dear friends, and we're sharing fun and interesting and inspiring coffee stories and also about experiences. And we were just chatting with Luis about his time, how he started at the Stanford University's Office of Technology Licensing. And he was there as associate director since uh, 1988 all the way through 2017. And we had just learned how Luis became affiliated with the Office of Technology Licensing as well as some of, the, some of the favorite parts of being there, and it really was about the wonderful people. And we were just going to ask Luis about this inspiring moment. It was actually historical, and we call it the Google moment. Please share with us, Luis, about the Google moment. Okay, sure. Um, so just a little background in general how um, how things work in, in the office is that um, we uh, took in invention disclosures from uh, faculty, faculty, staff, and students. So whenever uh, an invention was made, uh, they would, uh, a faculty, staff, or student would fill out an invention disclosure form and then submit that to us. And we would then um, evaluate that invention and decide whether or not um, we thought we could license it. And if we thought we could license it, in other words, we thought we can find a company that would be interested in commercializing that invention, um, then we would uh, enter into a license agreement with that company whereby we would grant them rights to, to these inventions uh, to them in order for them to freely practice that invention under uh, any, any intellectual property rights um, that we had. So, so we looked at, um, back in the early days of, of OTL, initially about 180 invention disclosures. And then when I left there in 2017, we were getting close to 500 invention disclosures over uh, every year. And so it was a quite quite busy office, and um, wow. there was a there was a day back in uh, 1996 when uh, I was in our office, and I act, I was uh, standing up near the uh, receptionist desk because I was going through my mail because our mail slot was up by the rece- receptionist desk, and a student uh, walked into the front door and told the receptionist that he had an invention disclosure that he wanted to submit. And so I sort of stepped up and introduced myself and, um, uh, and asked him uh, what, uh, what the invention was about and um, uh, to, to tell me a little bit more about what he was looking for as far as um, um, our office's um, uh, services. And so he said that the invention had to do with uh, improving search on the internet. And back in um, 1996, I mean, that was, those were really the early days of um, of the internet. And, um, and if, unless you were there at the time, it's really hard to imagine. But um, there weren't <laughs> a lot of web pages. There weren't a lot of web pages at the time compared to how there, how many there are now. And the uh, speed of the internet was 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 quite slow too. So it really was early early days. Um, and um, there were a number of search engine companies um, 
uh, in existence at that time, some um, of which your listeners might be familiar with still. Uh, one was called InfoSeq. Uh, there was another one called um, uh, Excite. Uh, Yahoo, which was still a, a young company, had only been in, uh, spun out, out of Stanford for a couple of years at that point, was doing search. Um, there was Alta Vista um, as well. And so um, this uh, student, whose name happened to be Larry Page, um, had a better way of doing search than the existing companies that were um, providing search um, to, um, to Internet or uh, web users. And um, you know, typically in, um, in universities, uh, researchers are doing uh, academic research and not necessarily doing product development. So they're trying to solve very difficult, intractable, um, uh, challenging problems. And um, the whole area of search um, was quite challenging, and that was really um, uh, exemplified uh, if, if, if you happen to be around in those days by the fact that the search results that you would get when you would type in a query into a search box on, you know, an InfoSeq or Excite, you would get back some really bad results. I mean, you would not see really what you were <laughs> looking for on that first page. And, uh, you know, oftentimes you would have to go through multiple, pa- multiple pages and still not see something that looked relevant to what you wanted. And so search was really important, but nobody had really figured it out. Um, and so when I asked Larry what he wanted to do with the invention, he was in, only interested in our licensing the technology uh, and, you know, making it a successful technology um, to, to the world. Um, he had no interest in whatsoever in, um, in doing a startup company, you know, at that point. And I said, okay, great. You know, we'll, um, we'll take a look at this uh, invention disclosure and, and get back with them and let them know what we were going to do. So, um, so we looked at the disclosure, and um, it was quite complicated. In fact, Larry Page told me that the math was so complicated that even its professors didn't understand it. Uh, and so I wasn't going to begin to try to understand the math, and I was mostly interested in well, how well it had worked. Um, and because it was um, academic research, uh, he hadn't really been able to test it on um, the entire web. Um, he had only been able to test it on a small data set. And so... Um, and again, this is a very typical problem with um, with university inventions, where um, um, you know things can only be done at a, at, a, at a very early stage level. And oftentimes, to real times to really test things out, you have to spin out technologies and and put a lot of um, development money into um, further uh, developing it and scaling it up. Uh, so, um, so that, that was one of the, one of the, one of the issues with this. It wasn't really clear whether this invention was going to work, um, on a bigger data set. Uh, and so Larry Page and I, and, and his colleague, uh, um, uh, Sergey Brand, um, who was helping him with some of this research and working with him on some of this research related research, uh, the three of us went around and met with all of these companies to gauge their interest in, um, uh, in licensing the technology. And um, at that time, I had already gone ahead and made the decision to the patent invention because the Internet, even though it wasn't really big at that time, it looked like it was on this trajectory to become big at some point. So we felt that it was a good investment for the university to, to file a patent application on it. Um, and so we did that, and then we went out. We um, started what we call shopping the technology around. To, to gauge uh, any licensing interest. And um, the upshot of it is, to make a long story short, um, the, nobody was interested in the technology. And, um, 
And so after about six months of knocking on doors and, and being told, well, we're not interested, we don't really think this thing is, this, this idea is that great, um, Larry and Surya got quite frustrated and um, they, um, they're what I call now in hindsight, um, accidental entrepreneurs. And um, <laughs> they were not interested whatsoever in becoming an entrepreneur. They wanted to finish their PhDs and, um, uh, and not start a company. But after being you know, told that the invention was not any good, um, they really felt that people really didn't understand what they were trying to do and didn't see the potential. And at that point, they decided, okay, well, we're just going to go do this ourselves. And so they were able to raise some, some seed funding from um, people that they knew um, to, um, to start up a company. And so, um, interestingly enough, there was one other company at that point after they had already decided to um, uh, start a company. And one of the companies, uh, InfoSeek, came back to me and had asked for a license um, after we had already been talking with Larry and Sergey about doing a startup company. And they had asked for a non-exclusive license uh, to the technology. And um, if we had granted, and they had put a fairly uh, sizable sum of money at that time on the table for a non-exclusive license, uh, and, it, and it, would, it would have, in most cases, been a very attractive uh, license fee. Um, but I decided that what InfoSeq was trying to do was really hedge their bets. They weren't necessarily that interested in commercializing the technology. They just worried were, were worried about um uh, making a mistake and, and wanting it later on. And so they, they were trying to hedge their bets by taking a license at that point. But then that would have killed the startup company uh, possibilities of raising money if we had given a, a non-exclusive license to somebody else. So I decided at that point is that we were going to go ahead with Larry and Sergey, even though Larry and Sergey really had no business experience. They had no business plan. Um, but, you know, it was clear that uh, if anybody was going to make this, this technology a success, it was going to be Larry and Sergey, you know, people who really knew this technology better than anybody. So, so that, in a nutshell, is really maybe not a nutshell, but that's really the, uh, this, the how Google came to be. That story is so amazing, Luis, and we are so grateful to you, first of all, for sharing the story and how that all happened. But I think our listeners are just just in awe of that Google moment, how you actually felt that, you know, to inspire these, these young, like you say, accidental entrepreneurs on this journey and to be so much a part of that, that Google, those early moments of how, how that all happened is just a fantastic story. And thank you for sharing that, Louise. Um, we really appreciate it. Some of those projects at the Office of Technology Licensing were really interesting technologies, a lot like Google, and you were so much a part of that. And being part there in Silicon Valley in the San Francisco area, you've done a lot of other things, too. You've been founder of what is called Stanford Innovation Farm Teams, and the iFarm team project, Teams projects, tell us, please, a little bit about what they're involved in. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because it doesn't really tie into um, uh, the Google moment uh, and uh, a lot of other technologies that, that universities see in the sense that um, you have some really brilliant people who come up with really good ideas, um, but then um, it's just an idea. And to take that idea the next step towards commercialization is a very difficult step to take. And it's very difficult oftentimes to find companies 
um, to develop um, those technologies, companies willing to sort of take the risk and spend millions of dollars to try to prove whether or not that technology is commercially viable or not. And so, so I came up with this program called the Innovation Farm Team Program to help um, move some of these early-stage technologies a little bit farther down the path towards commercialization to, to de-risk the technologies in order to, uh, to, to um, make them more attractive to potential um, licensees. And, and so the way the iFarm team worked was that um, we would gather um, uh, uh, teams of people. We would, we would basically put out solicitations to people who wanted to participate on, the, on these iFarm teams. And, and we would put together a multiple, multidisciplinary team of people. So we would find somebody with some technical background or some engineering background or some software background, you know, biotech, what have you. We would put together multiple these, these teams of multidisciplinary people, and then we would have them pick from a, a, a pool of technologies um, uh, an invention that they wanted to work on as part of their iFarm project. And so these program, this program would last five months, and, and over the course of the five months, these teams would take this technology and um, try to figure out um, what, the, what the potential markets were and what kinds of things that could be done to try to make that uh, invention more um, uh, commercially attractive. And so that program um, was in existence for four years when I was there and um, ended up being quite successful uh, in the sense that we were able to license four companies um, in, in those four years, which were um, which was a pretty good batting record since um, those four technologies probably would not have been licensed but for the iFarm team program. So, so I felt that that was a very successful program and and I think that um, other universities are uh, developing models that are quite similar to that. That's so interesting, Luis, and how you inspired that. And thank you for sharing it, how you can take, you know, the idea to then actually realizing um, and implementing a technology. What a fantastic program. And we know that you've also been involved in a variety of other things, um, Climate Donor Inc. and um, involvement in realizing innovation program. And you're also involved in Hawaiian Ethos currently, and you're currently also CEO of VoterCapital.org. We're wondering, please, before we have about a minute before break, please share with us what VoterCapital.org does. Sure. VoterCapital.org is um, a company that I started to try to help address the problem with what um, uh, a problem called institutional corruption in in our government, which is essentially the idea that um, that ordinary people don't have a voice anymore, and that um, this, uh, a um, special interests and a wealthy few really control what goes on in our government processes, not only at the congressional level but at the state and local levels as well. And so the idea of voter capital was a way of building a platform to help people get more engaged and to try to be able to more effectively influence their legislators um, whose existence really depend on the voters. And, you know, it has been for the many years that, that um, legislators don't really pay that much attention to, to the voters. They really pay attention to the people who are funding their campaigns, you know, the special interests and the wealthy few. So we're trying to turn that table and try about, at least level the playing field to enable uh, voters to have a real voice in, in the country. And that's what voter capital is all about. 
Well, having that voice is so important, and thank you for doing that, Louise. And when we come back after the break, listeners, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of Louise's future projects, um, how he likes to enjoy the starting of his day with coffee, favorite ways he likes to prepare coffee right after the break. So please join us. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to My Favorite Coffee Story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We're talking about friends and coffee, and we're with our good friend Luis Mejia today. He's the CEO of VoterCapital.org, and also, most recently, he was Associate Director at Stanford University's Office of Technology Licensing from 1988 to 2017, and we were just sharing the incredible story about how Google got started and how Luis was a part of that and inspired that whole happening of Google. So thank you for sharing that with us, Luis. And we were just sharing also about what VoterCapital.org does and their mission and and definitely giving voters a, a voice and helping them know about issues. So that's just a fantastic project you're working on, Luis. We were going to ask you about when you start your day, um, how does that go when you have your coffee and your favorite way to prepare coffee? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coffee is, has become such a big part of, of 
of my life, I think. I really can't go a day without it, and I usually can't go a day without at least having two cups of coffee. I, I tend to drink coffee very strong, um, and uh, hence all the need to only do it twice a day. So usually first thing in the morning, um, what what my wife and I do now is we use a, um, a, a device called the AeroPress. And um, quite an interesting aside here on the AeroPress is that was um, created by a company that was spun off um, out of Stanford by a, an aeronautical uh, engineering professor. And um, this is uh, the professor actually, his first invention was a thing called the aerobi. And some of your listeners might be familiar with the aerobi, which is kind of like a, a frisbee with a hole in the middle. Um, and it's quite aerodynamic, and it's, it's so. In fact, it's so aerodynamic that it's easily the throw. It's one of these aerobies is easily thrown a hundred yards by a lot of people. And um, I think they're the world record of any um, thrown object of a, by a human is, is with one of these aerobies. But um, so this professor, actually, his company um, does in, um, uh, engineering uh, inventions, and one of the inventions that he came up with was the aero press. And so it, it's kind of like a French press. Um, but it has has a filter, and it's quite convenient to use. Uh, we usually, again, make our cups fairly strong. We use like three big scoops of of, of ground coffee in in the AeroPress and pour hot water in it, and then it's got this um, plunger that you push down through this um, cylinder to help to force the water through through the grounds, and the the um, the water is uh, separated from the grounds through the filter, which makes for a nice strong cup of coffee without grounds that you might get in um, in a in a in a French press. Um, so it's very convenient, and it makes a really nice strong cup of coffee, very similar to a uh, like a normal espresso coffee that you would get through an espresso machine. And so that's currently our favorite way of making coffee at home. Um, we like going to have coffee in the afternoon at, at local um, coffee shops, and uh, we go various places because we like trying out different um, uh, coffee shops. Uh, in uh, when we're in um, uh, in Honolulu, we like a um, uh, like to go to Honolulu Coffee over there uh, on on Oahu. And then while we're here, um, when we're not having Anikona coffee here at, uh, at Anikona Farms, we, um, we will go to downtown Kona and have um, uh, coffee at a place called Daylight Mine there, which makes a really nice um, espresso and latte. So um, it's, uh, it's definitely a big focus of our lives. We really don't go, days, uh, go, don't go much through, through the day without thinking of coffee. So it's something we quite enjoy and... <laughs> Um, uh, and really can't live without it. <laughs> well, and Luis, when you would actually work at Stanford's Office of Technology Licensing, if I remember correctly, I think you used to ride your bike from your home all the way over to campus. And by chance, did you stop at a favorite coffee shop? <laughs> well, um, so, yeah, I'd ride, uh, my bike ride was about 10 miles each each way, uh, so about a 20-mile round trip uh, in, in the day. And I would tend to get up pretty early, especially in the wintertime. It would be dark outside. and, um, and But it was really a great pleasure to be able to ride a bike. I just felt um, wonderful being out in the fresh air and riding, usually when there was not much traffic on the road. Um, and there weren't um, coffee shops typically open on the way. And um, I was usually in, 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 a, in a hurry to kind of get to the to campus, and then 
I would get to the campus and I would shower and put my work clothes on and get over to my office. And, and I would usually then have a cup of coffee in, in my office. The one thing I have found that, that um, I um, usually like coffee after exercise versus before exercise. And uh, the same okay. thing with surfing. I mean, I, I, um, um, every surf session usually is followed by a, a, a cup of coffee somewhere. And uh, that has been quite a routine of mine in front of uh, and with friends of mine. You know, I've been surfing for probably close to 50 years. And, um, uh, you know, in my 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 career, my professional career, um, my, uh, my surfing sessions have been always followed with a, a coffee somewhere at a local coffee haunt near the beach, maybe in Santa Cruz or in Honolulu, in fact. Well, and those are usually early days, right, getting the, the good surf in and... Uh, would you say that you have a, well, I know you love to surf in Santa Cruz, California, and uh, which is wonderful. Do you have a favorite coffee spot there in Santa Cruz that you like to go to? Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a number of different places. Um, uh, there was a place uh, that my wife first um, introduced me to uh, when we first met in Santa Cruz called Santa Cruz Coffee Roasting. And um, uh, they are probably one of my favorite places in, in Santa Cruz. Uh, they make a really nice um, uh, espresso, and they have really great baristas. Um, they roast their own coffee. Uh, they've been around a long time. Um, they actually had their um, coffee roasting um, um, uh, retail space uh, destroyed in the 1989 uh, Loma Prieta earthquake. And so... Um, uh, they were able to fortunately um, relocate, and after that, they were they were out of business for for some time until until they were able to get a new um, uh, location after they had to uh, move out. But uh, they've they've remained one of our our most favorite places in, in in Santa Cruz. Well, and for our listeners, Santa Cruz, California, is just south of San Francisco, and is just a beautiful spot, beautiful beach and ocean, and great surf spot. And Luis, we're so curious for our listeners. We'd love to share. We've talked a little bit about some of the things you've been involved in. What are some of the future projects for you down the road? Well, one, one of the things I think you mentioned that I'm working on is a, is a uh, nonprofit called Climate Donor. And um, I started that a few years ago with a former colleague from Stanford. Uh, the idea of that was to try to help fund climate change mitigation projects that were not um, able to get funding. So it was, it was kind of a crowdfunding site. And it's so it's in existence uh, at this time. And so we're going to continue to work on that because, um, you know, we're all concerned about climate change. And so we want to try to, to do what we can to help um, to mitigate the effects of, of, of um, uh, carbon emissions on, 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 our, on our planet. Um, the other thing is that I'm working here in Hawaii on a, a company called Hawaiian Ethos. And so uh, we're a botanical medicine company, and um, so currently helping them get that company up and running. Um, and there are some wonderful people um, who who I'm working with. I'm very have the pleasure of being here uh, in Hawaii, um, uh, uh, at least part time at this point, to um, help get this company um, uh, uh, off the ground. And we wish you well with that, and uh, that's all so exciting. When you're here on the Big Island and uh, you, you try to get in, in some, some surfing when you can, but I, I believe you've also attended some music events and you're a wonderful guitarist. Please share with us how you learned to play the guitar, Louise. Well, I was um, uh, 
interested in playing the guitar. I think I was probably, I don't know, maybe in the eighth grade or ninth grade or something like that. I was just really intrigued with the, with the instrument. And so my mother was um, very was a very wonderful person, um, and she was uh, didn't make a lot of money at the time. Uh, and she, um, I think, uh, made a special effort to, to get me a guitar uh, and to um, start uh, me on lessons in um, at the at the time I was in right down the beach in, in in Southern California. So I started playing fairly early uh, in my uh, in my life. Um, but I have really I consider myself more of a hobbyist than you know a real true guitar player. I like just the I love guitar music. Um, I'd rather listen to somebody really good play than listen to myself play. But I enjoy. You know, grabbing my guitar and sitting down and 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 playing music and playing with playing with friends. Um, I also um, have taken some flat key lessons uh, here in Hawaii over over the years, uh, and it's a different kind of sound than than the normal um, folk uh, um, music. And so that's kind of nice too that you can play uh, different styles of music, you know, with, with the same instrument. And um, you know, that has actually led to, to ukulele playing as well. And ukulele, um, if you're a guitar player. Is, a, is an easy instrument to pick up um, because uh, if you play guitar, you know how challenging can be sometimes just um, uh, creating the, the chords. And uh, it's much, much easier to create chords on a, on a ukulele. Uh, and so if somebody who loves the idea of an of a, of a acoustic instrument, you know, doesn't really have the um, time to spend to learn to play guitar, an ukulele is a great instrument to pick up if you love music. And that's um, so fun. And when you've had your times on the Big Island and you you played music, um, have you by chance also attended any musical concerts? I think there's a lot of beautiful music here on the island. And uh, if I remember correctly, there was um, one event that you went to, like there's a jazz club and there's also um, the, the place right on the ocean. You had sent us a photo that you were attending a music event. That's just so wonderful. Have you been enjoying the music on the Big Island? Well, that's one of the great things. Yeah, that's one of the great things about Hawaii is that music is a big part of their culture here, and that in itself. I mean, the, the how guitars were inter- introduced in Hawaii was a whole interesting story in itself, and probably another program for you. But um, <laughs> there's a great history of of um, uh, acoustic music here, um, and uh, with the introduction of the guitar, and and th- that blends in with a lot of the traditional Hawaiian music that came originally from uh, Polynesia. And so it's really a rich and diverse um, uh, uh, area for for music and um, wonderful uh, local uh, musicians. Uh, you know, there's there's Gertrude's Jazz Bar down in Kona that which is always have wonder that always has wonderful music. Um, there's uh, this program called the Twilight, which is at the Manolani Resort, which will, will bring in um, talk story along with uh, musicians um, to talk all about Hawaiian culture and um, and play some wonderful, beautiful Hawaiian uh, music on an outdoor setting, you know, on a very scenic beach, you know, in, yes. in, in Hawaii. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are just so, there are just so many so many wonderful uh, musicians here, and you can just go to any uh, hotel usually that's um, along the on the coast, and they'll always have somebody playing acoustic music, and it just makes for a wonderful setting. 
Yes, absolutely. And Louise, we've been so enjoying our chat with you, and and we have about a minute or so. We were loving to ask the, the question, since we are talking about friends and coffee, you've touched on your career, which we so enjoyed hearing all about that, what you're involved in, some of your future projects, and also about sharing good moments with friends and surfing, um, music. Just for our listeners, how do you balance your time, Louise, with all that you're doing? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I try to live, you know, uh, simply as, as I can. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if you live simply, you can find time to, to do the things you want to do. And so um, we don't watch a lot of TV, um, if any. Uh, we never, for the past 30 years, really haven't watched much in the way of TV. And, you know, we like reading as well. We read a lot of books. And, um, you know, there's enough time in the day to, to fit everything in. Um, but it's just a matter of prioritizing what you want to do, what, in, what, what, brings you, what brings you joy in your life. And, you know, I'm really thankful to have my wife with me most of the time because, um, I mean, she's the most special person. Yes. And that's who I'd rather spend my time with. And so fortunately, she enjoys a lot of the same things that I do. So we really enjoy doing things together. Yes. And we so appreciate you, Louise. And thank you for joining us today on My Favorite Coffee Story and sharing your inspiring stories. We're so grateful to you and we were so honored to have you today. So thank you for joining us. And listeners, we really enjoyed our time today talking about friends and coffee with Louise. You know, it's always so great to share friend times over a cup of coffee. We're we're so grateful to Luis and Jules, and we treasure our friendship with them. And thank you, listeners. We we always enjoy sharing our Anikona gift. If you'd like to go to anikona.com, and, and please feel free to share questions at radio at myfavoritecoffeestory.com. So thank you again for another great visit together on My Favorite Coffee Store. We look forward to being together next week. And in the, in the meantime, we wish you a wonderful aloha. Thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on My Favorite Coffee Story. Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week.